la 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 putting on my headphones when i put on my headphones nick i am in professional mode i do not want disturbing have i made myself clear what darling you want me to what shut up i can't do that i've got a podcast what your attitude absolutely stinks find an ncp and park that attitude forthwith do you know how many games i play for england seven you don't care that we drew nil nil with saudi arabia oh we gave those saudis a bloody good run for their money that's all i'm saying Hope we didn't hear any of that. No, no, no. That was all there. Uh, good. All good. very private. Hugh very can't private. believe your attitude. That's all I'm saying. Hello. Steve, Steve looks gobsmacked too. Hi, Steve. What's Nikki done? Oh, what hasn't she done? God, God. She's still being brilliant. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, she's just laying it on the line, keeping it real, keeping me grounded, you know? I'm glad you arrived late, Rory. Nikki and I... She's, she's been, I've laid down the law this morning. She, her behaviour's been appalling. She called me a knob. It's completely unacceptable. You are a knob. I am not, <laughs> ow! Right, that's physical violence. We got that on tape. I've not pressed record yet, Chinch. Right, who's got the Hague's phone number? <laughs> you can't treat me like that. <laughs> Seven caps I had. Yeah, but you didn't score in any of the games. I think this was a mental <laughs> score. Saudi Arabia nil. That's all I'm saying. That was my job. Saudi Arabia, I know. Up and coming team, they are. They are. No, they were. They were. They had Try a really dangerous game. right winger. Nil. I wasn't meant to score goals. Were you? I was a creator and a, and a yeah, stopper. You didn't set any up either, did you? Yes, I did. Well, Paul Merson missed. It wasn't my fault. Why did Nikki call you a knob? Yeah, why did you call me a knob? That's a very good question. You are a knob. Yeah. Good reason. But <laughs> Perfectly valid. Generally, but why specifically? Because I was calling you out yeah. on... This is Set Piece Benny, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, Nine Ladies Dancing, Rory Smith, Eight Maids Are Milking, and Andy Hinchcliffe, Seven England Caps. He <laughs> <laughs> so took a sip at the wrong moment there. You <laughs> spat my cappuccino everywhere then. The food is, uh, Rory, you've got a new cafe that you want to plug. Uh, yeah, well, I hope... I'm, 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 <laughs> Someone has to take on the commercial arm of this operation, and, and I'm desperately trying. I spent like four years trying to plug Casa Italia. They never sponsored us. Now I'm going to turn my attentions to the Commute, which is my new local cafe that does a lovely, a lovely piccolo. Only place in this particular stretch of the wilds of Yorkshire where I can get quite a poncy Italian coffee. Uh, it's very good, but there's no food because we're recording this at 20 to 10 in the morning. It would be weird if we were eating. I like the idea that you go to go to a place called the Commute on your way from the kitchen oh, to the attic. <laughs> it's, it, it's no, it's, it's on the way back from dropping at a uh, playgroup. Oh, okay. The um, the the irony of it is that it's a cycling cafe. This is a big cycling country, and you obviously not in in tier three, which we are at the moment. But you, when it's when it's open to sit in, you get lots of people with their with their fancy bikes and their and their lycra and their the things those those shoes that make them walk like penguins and. And I just, I sit there sort of, sort of working, not cycling. I walk there, walk back, occasionally might drive there just to, just a month. Have, have they tried to draw you into the cycling world? Have they tried to tempt you? It's increasingly, the biggest change in Yorkshire 
since I left when I was 18 to when I moved back at the age of 38 is that now everybody cycles literally all of the time. It's like, it's impossible to, to not own Lycra in this, in this part of Yorkshire. And they are trying to, it's a bit like a cult, but a cult where everything's very skin tight, which is probably the best type of cult. Uh, they, they do try and draw you in, mainly by guilt stripping you for not doing it. I'm quite ungainly on a bike, so I don't, I don't want to, I'm, I've got, I've got like bike shame. So I don't, I don't want to be part of that scene because I, I, I wouldn't look good. It's for shorter men. The people in Yorkshire cycle, Rory, because there's no longer easy access to coal to power your vehicles there. That's largely it. And obviously most of the pony and traps have been decommissioned. So it's, it's, just, it's, it's just pedal power. It's a sort of weird mix of they had the Tour de France once and really got into it, but also the Hovis advert. Mm. It's, it's the two sides of it. Yorkshire's got a long tradition of cycling. It used to be on cobbled streets and young urchins, but now it's kind of lawyers on five grand road bikes. <laughs> Yorkshire people used to cycle on young urchins. That's they did. That's what we used them for. That's what we used them for. That's, That's the best use of a young urchin. That is the food. The football is chinched. Do you know what we're talking about today? Uh, make it a multiple choice. Give me, give me a chance because you, you obviously know that I don't. I th- Do I? No, I don't. No, give, give me a multiple choice. Give me, give me an A or B. Are we're we talking talk- chinch about whether Ralph Hasenhuttle should take the Dortmund job. That's what we're talking about. We're going to do a whole podcast on that. Yeah, we're just going to, just going to continually say, do you know what? Ralph, Has- Ralph Hasenhuttle should take the Dortmund job. For 45 just, minutes. For 45 minutes, yeah. And should he? Oh, God, yeah, see, I've started your... No, no, no. So g- give me a choice, Hugh. We're talking about A or B. What? What? Well, I, we're either talking about that, which is unlikely, or we're talking yeah. about this. We're asking what happens... When the magic potion runs out. Chris Wilder has worked wonders at Sheffield United, but as things stand, they are winless and bottom of the Premier League. The alchemy so far performed by the manager has involved both the system and the personnel. But now one isn't working for the other. Wilder says the tactics on which two promotions have been based are not to blame. And sometimes it really is hard to move on from that system that gave you the most happiness in your life. But what happens when the magic potion runs out? That is to come as one of your two options, Chinch. Which do you think it is? Is it, can I phone a friend? No, no, I, I think it's B. Hopefully it's B. I also hope it's B because mm. uh, we kind of did the whole Ralph Hasenhuttle thing in 45 seconds. So I don't think we'll be able to get it mm. in 45 minutes. Um, setbeastmenu at gmail.com is our email address. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and please subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. A lot on last week's pod on allegiances uh, that have come into the email inbox this week. Um, some of that in a moment. But first, Abdallah Bashiti is back in touch from Jordan. All good. This could, this could be bid financially for this podcast. <laughs> Dear Jerry, George, Elaine and Kramer, I cannot tell you how much amusement I had after hearing Rory and Hugh battle it out as to whether my family's hardware store should sponsor SPM for free or in exchange for cash. Certainly the police officer who saw me beaming with joy like a madman while I was trying to cross the roundabout thought it was super weird for a grown man driving alone to be handing out smiles for no apparent reason at 8.30 on a Thursday morning. Anyway, he says, on behalf of my family, Bashiti Depot would be honoured to be the official SPM sponsor in Jordan for all hardware and house supplies, whether that was for free or for cash, (laughs) preferably free. And if any of you guys happen to be in the country and in need of an Allen key or other types of screwdrivers, know that Abdullah is there and will come to the rescue. Your favourite tenant from across the hall, Newman. So that's from Abdullah from Jordan. So, uh, you know, qualified success, Rory. That's great. It's a bit like Manchester United, isn't it? We've now got an official hardware supplier in Jordan. This is amazing. I'd like to see the logo. Do you think they've got a logo? Because if we're going to wear T-shirts and go out into the public and, and really, you know, spread their spread their wares across the world, we're going to need something to wear. 
this is all to do with the, this is the negotiation phase. So what we'll, we'll have to do now is we'll have to go to them and say, can you send us a logo that we can screen print onto T-shirts? Uh, and that will be their payment. And, and I think I just think this is a great model for this podcast that, you know, you get the big bookies sponsor like Totally and The Athletic have bought every other podcast in the world. And that's fine. But I wonder if, if our thing could be that we do what Man United have done and we have localised re- regional sponsors for, for slightly obtuse things. So we've, we've got a hardware supplier in Jordan. Let's get a manure company in Indonesia. Let's, let's get a, a pen manufacturer in North Korea. Let's just see what happens. Please do get in touch. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com. I expect some immediate returns on that uh, particular marketing This track. could be the strangest portfolio ever, <laughs> couldn't it? But we, 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 should, we should aim to do that, to get the most diverse portfolio of companies involved in the pod anywhere in the world. Then we can list them at the end. Yes. This, this, this podcast has been brought to you by Deletes as Applicable in Jordan. <laughs> I love the idea that we'd have a, pe- a pen manufacturer from a, cu- from a country where they really don't encourage you to write down your innermost thoughts. <laughs> Uh, so pen manufacturers in uh, in North Korea get in touch. Um, we've had a lot of emails then uh, since SPM 208 on allegiances. We'll uh, just do, do a few here to get us going uh, more over the next few weeks. Matt Cox is first. Hi, guys. Found the latest pod very interesting, as usual. I always really like the topics, which are usually as unexpected as they are intriguing. Was especially interested in what Rory said about don't let me know the colour of your politics or your team in his story about Michael Calvin and how he said that the Telegraph, as well as most national newspapers, I would suggest, have now given up on not showing the colour of their politics and are perhaps less likely to hide their journalist sporting allegiances too. Stephen made some good points about the advantages of this, the removal of a conspiracy as to who supports which club. But does this not take the field down a fairly dark path? As already happens in politics with certain publications and channels if football writers begin to display such a bias is it not likely that we will deepen divisions even further this definitely already happens with the idea that someone may be biased but if you actually embrace it surely it presents a different problem Stephen is right that the accusations of bias will go down because it is now obvious but it would exacerbate the current issue of people believing that only specific journalists or pundits tell the truth the continuation of at least the appearance of impartiality amongst the majority of writers and broadcasters is really important to me anyway because it protects the presentation of objective facts on which to base a discussion allowing that to slip may make many of the problems we currently have even worse. Uh, that is Matt Cox. Your thoughts on that in just a moment. But first of all, here's Joseph McGee Bilson on allegiances. Dear Ferreira, Carvalho, Terry and Cole. One of them's a left back. One of them's a good left back. You might be sick of hearing it, but thank you for how you've kept providing such quality content in a time that we all needed it. Allegiance in co-commentators, as you said, makes sense for Sky. Halftime, post-match, Monday night are no longer football-free times because people are drawn into listening to someone that represents them. However, could this in part attribute to football becoming more tribal? People become tribal when they think one thing, when they view the world through a super-specific lens. If Manchester United fans all just listen to Gary Neville, then his views become the orthodoxy for them. And then they all end up attacking anyone who doesn't represent this viewpoint. This isn't Gary Neville's fault, obviously, but if people don't listen Mm. to other journalists, if they all end up with one viewpoint, then they become more tribal. Which leads to my second point. Is one of the reasons that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer hasn't been slaughtered in the same way that perhaps David Moyes was, at least in my mind, is that Neville, Keane and Skulls don't go after him in the same way. Which again, makes sense as they are friends. Does fans' behaviour end up different because of personal allegiances among TV pundits? I hope this makes sense. Keep up the good work. That is from Joe. And before him was Matt. I, I certainly agree with the idea that what you 
see on the TV here, on the radio, and what you read in the papers can drive discourse amongst supporters. That doesn't seem far-fetched at all. And, and it certainly could be a factor in t- towards Ole Gunnar Solskjaer being given perhaps a little bit more time more and more leeway than he might otherwise get. But when you're a club legend, that has always been the case, isn't it? Club legends generally are given that opportunity to prove themselves. Now, we're also saying that, that fans want pundits who are associated with their clubs to be maybe as tribal about their clubs as they are. Because one thing I was re- really keen on kind of focusing on when I started doing this job was to be hopefully someone who would understand the game from having played it. But any team that I cover or talk about, I, I put in enough research, speak to enough people to give myself a view of that team. I don't want to be pigeonholed as a, a Sheffield Wednesday and Everton or Man City. I can only maybe talk about those teams that I play for. I wanted to be someone who, and maybe that's why I'm doing what I'm doing across the board in terms of doing the championship and, and the Premier League. If, if you do your work as a professional broadcaster, you should be able to talk about any club pretty comprehensively. Of course, you're not a, a fan, but I don't want to be a fan. I want to be a broadcaster who is there to provide a service. But then do I get criticised because I'm not just talking about Man City all the time or Everton or Sheffield Wednesday. But that's something that I consciously didn't want to become. The point about the pundits affecting the nature of the discourse around a certain club is a really good one because... So off, so it's a it's a great big circle, isn't it? So what will happen is you'll have the game, and the game will happen, and you'll then have a studio filled with ex players from one club who will then lead the discourse on on the game. The, the papers will then pick up what the pundits have said as much as anything else. That that's you know, there's, it's certainly I get the impression that a long time since I was actually sat in a newsroom, but you get the impression that that there's, there's someone in the office at most of the major papers when when you're allowed in the office whose job is to see if Paul Strolls or Patrice Everard... But that, but that happened in... I, I saw in press rooms, I don't know who it was, recording the yeah. pundits saying what they were saying. So again, they're then taking, well, Gary Neville says this or Michael Richards says it. So they're actively doing that and then passing yeah. that off to, to the fans, thinking that that's... They'll do their journalistic job, but they'll also pass on those comments from those people as well. I think we've talked about this before, but it's a slightly weird function of... And I don't know whether, I suspect it does apply in like France and Spain and Italy and Germany as well, but certainly I've, I've always found it slightly odd in, in the English press, which is all that I've been exposed to, that, and do you know, it's something that Klopp regularly challenges journalists on, and he's it, always dressed up as being chippy or, or kind of angry or whatever when he does it. And I don't think he is. I think he's, I think he's kind of got a really valid point, which is he will be asked to say something about like a refereeing decision that, and... and you know, someone will ask him in a press conference, are you, you know, that was never a goal or that should have been offside or whatever, or isn't VAR a joke? And he'll say, look, you can see it too. If you think that, you write it. Don't make me say it. But there's this convention in the British media that you have to get somebody to say something. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you can't mention it. So if there's a, if there's a terrible decision, the journalist whose job it is to, to write the news story from a game, the kind of Man United last night, one, two, one, or whatever, the, the straight news story rather than the match report, that, that journalist will not write, if they can help it, a controversial or an appalling or a clearly very wrong refereeing decision did this, this and this. They need a voice to say, Gary Neville last night blasted VAR or Jurgen Klopp last night blasted VAR. And I think that's where the pundits have a, have a power that maybe they don't quite realise is that they then lead the conversation. They set the tone of the conversation for what follows over the next, over the next two or three days. and. Not that fans are being manipulated or not that they're not able to have their own opinions, but the whole discussion is shaped by what those pundits have said. So naturally, if you have lots of Man United pundits, 
it will be shaped in a certain way. And yeah, it may well be that there's a bit less pressure on, there's lots of reasons there's less pressure on Solskjaer than there should be, but one of them may well be that those pundits have thus far been relatively reticent in terms of, of, of suggesting that he's perhaps not that great. And that's probably true, Rory, because the pundits are more likely to say something that gives a journalist those lines than than the players themselves are in their mm. post-match interviews, where they're going to be a bit more guided. Just to prove that this isn't uh, purely an English thing, a couple of examples from Italy very recently, where uh, Inter Milan's um, Champions League campaign yeah. came to its conclusion last week. Antonio Conte fell out with the the pundits in the Sky Italia studio, Fabio Capello and one other. He was unhappy. Billy Costa Curta. Thank you. He was unhappy with the line of questioning. They felt he was being disrespectful towards them and that drove the narrative in the immediate aftermath of the game. And also Stefano Pioli, the, the, the AC Milan head coach, actually referenced what Claudio Ranieri had been saying about his team in one bit of post-match analysis in his build-up to the next game. So they are most certainly listening. It's not just an English thing. So journalistically, Rory, is it is it lazy to say, well, we'll just take what the pundits say as the most important? Are we losing, like you say, writing about the game and being tested as a journalist to give your view of how a game went? Are they are journalists now stepping back and saying, right, the game's been played. What's the big story? What's the big bigger picture here? We'll get a pundit's view and take. Is is that becoming the most important thing to report now, or do journalists say, no, the most important thing is me doing my job and reporting on the game that's just been played? There's a brilliant. I must have told this story before, but Tom Dart, who was a colleague of mine at the Times, uh, once wrote, uh, I think it was a match report that basically didn't involve the quotes from either manager afterwards. And he was challenged on it. Tom's a lovely fella. He moved to Houston. And actually, I took his job at the time. So well done, Tom Dart. <laughs> Helped me get me out of the nightmare of the Telegraph. Um, anyway, the, the, um, Tom, Tom's response was, well... I think the readers would rather hear from me than they would Jose Mourinho. <laughs> and that's, that's, like a, well, that's, taking, that's going completely the other way. Of course, you need to hear from the coaches. But again, no. you still want a fair chunk of it. It has to be your skill. Not saying so you, I, I'm saying Tom. His skill is reporting the game, isn't it? So he surely has to do that rather than say, Gary Neville making this explosive comment about VAR is more important than me writing about the game. So I think it's not, it's, this is, I can see Hugh getting cross because the schedule is being completely ripped keep, up. Keep talking, keep talking. Well, uh, only because the next couple of emails are relating to this point. So it may well, well be that they inform what Rory says as well. I think it's not lazy. You can't, you can't blame the journalists for, them, for doing it. Because the journalists ultimately, this sounds, this sounds a little bit like, like the excuses the stormtroopers made, but like they're just doing their job. So if, if you've got a journalist who's been sent to a game to get a news story, or a back page story for the tabs, it will be the case that they, the expectation is we, we need a quote from someone, whether it's a manager or a player or a pundit, mm -hmm. to, to lead that, the, to effectively lead the reaction. And I think there, there's probably a hierarchy there. I think ideally you want a player saying something incendiary, then a manager, and then a pundit. So often the pun, when you, as you quite rightly say in the press room, when you see the see journalists recording what the pundits are saying, that's often a backup. It's if the managers come into the press conferences and say nothing, or if the players all go through the mix zone with their headphones on, or if they borrow a child and carry it through so they don't have to stop and talk. <laughs> and the, the, this is, I've got my kid with me. Not your kid, 14, what are you doing? The, um, <laughs> you speaking for experience here. <laughs> Well, so there was the famous occasion when Phil Neville <laughs> held his phone the wrong way when he was pretending to talk. Yeah. Oh, really? What, upside down or the wrong way around? Wrong way around. Oh, a classic. 
Chintz, the thing is that Hugh and Steve have both have both kind of grown out of mixed hands. They're far too important now. They're yeah, both yeah. Very yeah. much, you know, in, in their stu- own minds, though, more than in, any, more than they're in else. studios. They're yeah. cosseted. Then, yeah. then they're not. They're not at the troll face. Well, we're oh. sort of in the you know in the rights holders flash interview area, really, yeah. Rory, where you know people just get brought to us along with a post match meal <laughs> yeah. and some champagne. <laughs> we can eat a, a drink. The, yeah. um, what sort of beverage would you like, sir? The it's now it's the the, the players have now real the players know that we know the phone trick. So now they've started sort of having other props, principally children. So they'll they'll deliberately wait for their children and then they'll walk through saying, oh, sorry, I've got my kids. But often you sort of think, hey, is that definitely your child? I thought you were single and, and didn't have any children, but now you apparently have seven and they're all they're all in their early 20s. <laughs> well, they're all the same age, exactly the same age. The, um, the club's just saying, right, here's your, here's your, here's your post-match meal, here's your Louis Vuitton bag, here's a child to do the mid-zone. <laughs> Was that one of the ball boys from earlier? <laughs> <laughs> Is that not that kid from the youth team? Anyway. <laughs> It's, it's not laziness on the part of the journalist, but it is, it's an interesting journalistic convention. And I think I, I've always thought that, that Plop has a point when he says it, that at times, if you have a pundit who's doing a game and he's quite a rare presence at, you know, to do a game, if it's a pundit who's a recently retired player or is a current manager or is someone who you don't hear regularly, it can be valuable to and valid to report what they've said, but I think it's too often a crutch, and it's used. It's partly to do with the structure of newspapers and the, the conventions of newspapers. But I think often it's used as a way of of the journalist not having to say something, to have an opinion, and finding someone to to sort of express that opinion. I think that's what Klopp objects to, and I think that's what shapes the debate. So if Gary Neville says Man United were robbed, that that carries much more weight than you know. Dave Express from the Mail saying Man United were robbed. And I think too often we're, as journalists and as a media culture, we're, we're too willing to say, well, let's just get somebody else to say it rather than pointing out, actually, do you know what, that was just a bad decision and we can objectively say the referee got that wrong or whatever, or, or the manager is being, is throwing a hissy fit and is unjustified in his criticism or whatever. We're too quick to say, to say let's take the, the perceived conflict from the TV studio and run that as a story instead. But it's exactly the same thing. And just to finish on this, and we'll have the other emails in just a moment. The broadcasters in particular are very happy for their pundit to lead that discussion because then they are are getting themselves uh, brand awareness uh, in the news. Uh, Some broadcasters are then prepared to generate the news headline afterwards themselves because they feel like there might be a vacuum uh, to fill. So there is a way that the media is doing it, but they're just doing it in a way that self-promotes rather than in a way that actually helps that 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 issue that was that you were speaking about. Right, I'm going to do the rest of the emails now quickly, and then we'll and then we'll um, move on. So I feel like we've we've done any possible responses to these emails already. Uh, Buffalo Chris Wilkerson is next. Jamie, Gary, Patrice, and of course Don. Very <laughs> <laughs> yes, That wasn't put back in the edit. I enjoyed the latest podcast, says Chris. Interesting on allegiances. You uh, would imagine the only people who really get too aggrieved about these kind of things in print would be the kind of people who are going to lose their minds over any criticism of their club, regardless. The Miguel Delaney audience, some would call it. Uh, that's what Chris says. I would say, however, that you do notice it more when it's someone, someone talking about their own team. As West Ham led Manchester United a couple of weeks ago, Gary Neville's sarcasm and cutting wit about the team that he supports were genuinely hilarious. Equally, I can think of examples where it being your own team is a huge problem. 
I would completely forgive Jacob Steinberg for having a diminished passion for West Ham these days. When reporting on anti-Semitism in the club's support, and I think on Islamophobic insults thrown at Mo Salah during a game a couple of seasons ago, he came under attack from fans of the club that he supports. Their justification was that Jacob was a grass and that he should be ashamed to drag the club's name through the mud. Typically, of course, these idiots didn't seem to think that the perpetrators were the problem. And if they did, it was a more difficult issue than the baffling notion that to support your club is to blindly enthuse about it. His fandom was known and became an issue that what he did was actually the perfect way to support the club by exposing shameful behavior and looking to better it was unimportant it seemed he was less of a fan not acting as family should he was also quite plainly doing his job reporting notable stories but the sacred right of being West Ham was more important so whilst I think it's a silly thing to have to be hiding I do see why you would in a world where people can sling abuse at you your family and anything else that they feel online why open yourself up for more. Thanks as ever. That's from Chris Wilkerson. Uh, Matthew Durrant, who is our friend from the team local to two of us, says hello to West, Didsbury, Chalton and Main Road. I've just listened to your podcast on allegiances and football media. Insert the usual compliment here. And it occurred to me that part of the reason that neutrality and journalists may be dying out is a generational issue. As someone who is relatively recently young, I'm at a similar age to people who are becoming staple faces and voices in the media now. And those under the age of 35 are on the upper edge of people who have lived most or all of their adult life actively online. Through Bebo, MySpace, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and whatever else, people who are on the cusp of middle age generally have a trail of evidence of prior behavior that, as a football journalist, for example, would very clearly belie your own sporting prejudices and thus give no plausible deniability of your own allegiances. As an example, the news editor of The Athletic, Amitai Winehouse, makes no attempt to hide his support of Leeds United. Mostly, I'm guessing, as it would be pointless to do so. Like myself, Amitai spent some of his uh, teenage years writing for Leeds fanzine The Square Ball, though unlike myself, he was able to build up a body of Leeds-centric work and Leeds-centric following on Twitter. To try to hide that once he got a full-time job working for a national newspaper partially on the back of his work around Leeds, gaining traction online, would have been detrimental to his career. It would have alienated the following that he built up and negatively affected his credibility if he had tried to remove any evidence of his fandom. If Amitai or any of his similarly youthful peers attempted to feign neutrality, a search of either Twitter or Google will surely provide irrefutable evidence of his allegiance. Avid supporters or detractors may be able to piece together who Hugh, Stephen and Rory support through anecdotal evidence or hearsay if you were, and I am sorry for writing this, a few years younger. It is a lot more likely that your younger self would have torn down the veil of impartiality by repeatedly replying to Redacted's official account, telling them to sign, I don't know, Peter Odom Wingy in 2009. As is ever the case, the internet has ruined everything. Chalk it up, says Matthew. Um, Tim Stillman writes along similar lines. Really good episode on allegiances in episode 208. Before I make my observation, I will lay my cards on the table and say I am a freelance football journalist and I've been able to make a lot of my living specifically from writing and podcasting about my team. As a well-supported club, Arsenal have enough well-supported independent fan outlets that have been able to pay me a regular salary for writing and talking about Arsenal. And I know people like Andy Mitten, who covers Manchester United, has been able to cross over into mainstream journalism via a similar route. I find I am often, to often hired to talk or write about Arsenal, usually when they're doing badly. Business is booming at the moment, precisely because I have that authority as a fan. It made me think about Rory's observation that it's more difficult to say you support a big six club as a journalist, and I don't think what Rory says is inaccurate. However, I think the panel's observations about authenticity and authority are more to the point here. Amy Lawrence, for instance, has never hidden the fact she is an Arsenal fan and has forged a fine career in mainstream journalism. 
This is not only because Amy is an excellent journalist, but because she has authenticity in the eyes of the audience, much as Tony Barrett does. She is an Arsenal season ticket holder from North London who started her career writing for the Guna fanzine. Though she is identifiably an Arsenal fan, she is still seen as a proper fan. Rory also spoke about Tony and described him as the scousest man in the universe. And again, therein lies the reason that his allegiance to Liverpool is accepted, because he is seen as a real Liverpool fan. In short, I think that it is just as possible to say you are a fan of a big six club as a journalist, but there is probably an unspoken authenticity test that one must pass to do it confidently. Keep up the great work. That is from Tim Stillman. And finally, from Robbie Wells, our Bear correspondent in North Carolina. Call in the gang. I'll keep it short. Rory... Hugh and Steve, chinch the local takeaway. Just not on the next pod if these are correct. <laughs> All the best, Robbie Wells. One out of four ain't bad, Robbie. A correspondence of any kind at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. That's a really good point about the, the way journalists access to get into the media. And I think in, in Am- I really like Amitai. I think he's, he's really talented. Um, that was patronising. He's very good, Amitai. But it would be weird. It would be a massive sea change for someone who's come through writing for things like the Square Ball, which is an excellent fanzine. Um, to then sort of get a job at a national paper or whatever, or, or a um, club-specific vertical, whatever the athletic is, and the propaganda outlet, uh, and the, <laughs> and um, and then be like, oh no, I don't support anybody. It would be weird, and I think it it um, it would be that would be detrimental to their careers. And I think actually there's enough fans out there who can who can handle the idea that other people support other teams that you can you can kind of you can wear it with pride and not have it necessarily affect your reputation i don't know whether people should lean into it quite as much as they do but that might just be my kind of outdated um opinion on it and the other thing that's really interesting i've done a piece this week on on jose Mourinho's instagram uh, which i'm fascinated by which led me to talk to a woman called lucy green who's a who's a futurist an author and a digital brand strategist we we would do very well to have her services but fortunately we afford me. her We've got me running the uh, the Jordanian commercial arm, so, so it's not a problem. And and she her, she said that with, there's been kind of a sea change with Instagram, which was always a very kind of aspirational thing, where now more more and more users, both older and younger, are seeking less that kind of you know that that shot of like a beautiful blue sky and a beach and and your legs, and it says like office for the day. Like people hate that because it's awful. So now what people want from Instagram is, is, a, is a slightly more sort of documentary, unfiltered kind of authentic approach. And I do wonder whether there's been a bit of a shift in the, in the nature of social media that prizes authenticity above all else, because we are all so conscious of how false it can be. And I wonder if that maybe feeds into the fan thing a little bit as well, that if you are seen as being authentic, whoever you support, people will tolerate it and accept it because there is underlying everything is the fact that all fans are basically the same like we we all think of our fandom is different is tribal and different and all that stuff and and it's fractured but basically the the emotional resonance behind it is exactly the same whoever you support even if it's like you and steve it sort of ties in with when people ask you for advice about how to get into the industry there is no tried and tested way nailing your colors to the mask will work for somebody will work for some people and will be detrimental to other to others there's no rhyme or reason as to to how that would pan out for a certain individual you've just got to follow what you believe is the right path for you and in the in the cases some of the examples given I guess if your route into journalism is through writing for for club media or club independent fan media then 
you sort of really got to keep following that path. Whereas if you have gone into to journalism via a different route or have never covered the club that you support, then it would seem crazy once you've established yourself to suddenly put your hands up and say, yeah. oh, by the way, I'm a dyed-in-the-wall, lifelong Coventry City fan. Now, I'm not sure how old or young you need to be to have read Asterix comics when you were a kid. Putting aside for the moment the particularly lazy cultural and racial stereotyping within them, these were the stories of how a village of plucky ghouls were able to resist the might of the occupying Roman army with the help of a magic potion prepared using only totally organic, free-range and sustainable ingredients, of course, by the village druid Getafix that gave these besieged pre-Frenchmen and women superhuman strength. But there was often a twist in these tales when the gourd that once was full of said potion was turned upright in a particularly needful moment, only to reveal that the last drop had already been drunk. So, Asterix, what now? No opportunity to re-up the situation apparently grave. How to find a solution so that you can live to feature in another episode of the comic book series sometime soon. Here is where we switch, necessarily, the location. Sheffield United have employed just the right kind of magic and naturally occurring ingredients to impressively climb from League One to the Premier League, led by their slightly diminutive but heroic, unmustachioed in this case, leader. Sidebar, the village in Gaul is actually led by chief vital statistics, but he isn't afforded a role in my very extended metaphor. And now, just like the Roman legions, the 19 other Premier League teams are closing in and Chris Wilder's magic potion seems to have run out. 12 games in, one point, and nobody's gushing about overlapping centre-backs right now. But is it his unique system, which Wilder says he would change if it was, or are the reasons more manifold than just the tactics? What happens when the magic potion runs out? Spoiler alert, Asterix always wins. Sheffield United probably won't. Just two things. One, we should make it abundantly clear we are not accusing Sheffield United of doping. That is, that is not what's happening. That's, I made the point very clearly about naturally incurring ingredients. It's a metaphor. And two, I cannot believe you're cancelling Asterix. I mean, I realised, thinking about it, as I loved Asterix as a kid, I realised that a lot of the depictions really are quite racist. But it just it just hurts to know that that's being removed from my things no, that no, I'm no. allowed to be fond about. Can, can, we, can we not do somewhere in between where I am referencing it so that uh, people are aware that I am aware of it? But uh, there was no suggestion that uh, Asterix will be cancelled. Let, let's try, let's not, I mean, I'm, I'm slightly surprised thinking about it, that it hasn't been cancelled, but it is something I'm very fond of. So I'd, ra I'd rather it wasn't if, if, if the kind of the social media mob could bear that in mind. Having spent two episodes... Oh, it's not for me, what a surprise. <laughs> no, here he is. He's doing someone, another car. Someone dropping off car keys again. <laughs> <laughs> Having spent two episodes very carefully protecting our own allegiances, Hugh has really much, he's really run the flag up of being a complete and utter nerd with the build-up to this week's topic, hasn't it? Asterix is massive. Seriously, Asterix is, I think is, I can trace my entire career back to Asterix. Asterix was the only thing that I would read when my mother forced me to go to the library as a child. And Tintin. Um, which probably needs an, an extra little, <laughs> extra little caveat as well from Tint certain, certain storylines in that. No, Tintin. I think Tintin has been cancelled. It has I officially Tintin, been cancelled. I think Tintin, there was a big storm about whether Tintin was racist at some point. Definitely, I, I've not seen one about Asterix, but there is there is definitely something about Tintin. I thought the problem with Tintin was that after there's something about Mary, no one could take the hairstyle seriously. <laughs> the main problem <laughs> with Tintin, Stephen, was that Tintin was a. <laughs> No, you can leave. You didn't leave me calling Tintin a <laughs> and that's fine. Uh, I'm glad that the beep is getting getting further use, uh, regardless of the subject matter. Shall we start by talking about the magic potion naturally occurring at Sheffield United? We shall say again, um, Chinch. What what tactically did 
Chris Wilder do that was so special and what allied with that has meant that they have done what they have done over the course of the last three years? Well, this is what we have to do. We have to go back to Chris taking over in League One. Um, originally, he, he started playing a back four, but there was a game, uh, I think, Gillingham away, way back when, when he changed to a back five. And he's stuck with that ever since. So again, it's not necessarily this overlapping centre-halves business. Yeah, of course, that was, it wasn't completely new. I think there were other coaches, is it in South America, that were maybe using this, this style of play as well. But again, he had, you know, Conlon and Basham, he had players who could do that. And I think you've got to remember playing in League One and in the Championship, they had good players for those divisions as well. So they had a style, they had a shape that clearly he changed to and stuck with because it worked for the players. They had an incredible togetherness because they'd spent a lot of time the kind of the same team week in and week out. They'd had success in League One. That then kind of fed into the success they had in the Championship, which deservedly took them to the Premier League. So the togetherness and the shape and the personnel was what it was all about. But in Chris's defence, I've spoken to him a, a couple of times about this and about the development and where you go from here and how long can this carry on. You can see by how they've, again, tried to bring the average age of the, the group of players down as well. He brought in Bogle and Lowe from, from Derby. McBurney came in. And Osborne came in, Rian Brewster. So it was clear that Chris realised that this could maybe only go so far. Injuries to Jack O'Connell kind of really highlighted kind of the deficiencies when he didn't play or say Basham didn't play. It really did change the way that Sheffield United played and they didn't have players to maybe come in and do the same type of job. So he was already, no, he knew that this needed to be adapted to be changed in terms of, of the ageing uh, squad of players that he had, players like Billy Sharp, who've been brilliant in League One and Championship, started to fall away. They're playing less games in the Premier League now because they're getting on in years as well. So he realised this. He's been trying to change it and change the style. And it's whether he will be given time to actually start to do that because the position they're in, it is about the results and where they sit in the league table. New owners have come in as well. He could be, again, in trouble because of where they sit in the league. But it's not as if he's had this magic potion and thought, well, I'll just ride this for as long as I possibly can. And hopefully we'll just be able to extend it out for five or six, seven years. He knew that wasn't going to be the case. And as they stepped up the leagues, he was looking and was in the transfer market, actively trying to um, get the squad to be a little bit younger, get younger players to understand the type of football that he wanted to play. And it wasn't necessarily always going to be with three centre-halves, two of them overlapping. He was looking to develop into maybe playing a back four, playing different formations with younger players. So I think it's just been, and people are just jumping on it now, it's all gone horribly wrong. It was never right in the first place. Clearly it was. You know, they lost Dean Henderson as well. They lost a very, very, one of the best goalkeepers in the Premier League. So there's a lot of components to why the struggle has been there. But you look at the numbers behind their performances, their work rate, they're the hardest working team in the Premier League. So it's not as if the players have got complacent and thought, we've made it now, we've done it now, we don't need to try. They seem to be trying to do the best that they can. Chris is trying to do the best that he can in terms of developing the squad and team. I don't know what more he can do, really, with that group of players, because he's done probably what a lot of other coaches would have done as well. It's just simply that at the moment, whether it's just purely confidence, they have everything else, but when you're losing games and, and you're not performing well, confidence starts to get hit, and that can be the biggest factor in all this. But also, he is now a victim of his success. Everyone said, well, promotion, promotion, Brilliant season last season. It's all gone horribly wrong and you're now a terrible manager and you don't know how to change it. He has actively been trying to change it. And that's why I thought I'd mention all those different elements that he's been working on. It's interesting how Wilder became such a kind of touchstone in a culture war. I think this, it happens with every English manager and it's, it's, a really, it's a really strange phenomenon that 
an English manager will do well and almost the immediate reaction is, well, why is he not being given the Arsenal job straight away? And there's, the, the, there's this big sort of kind of from within football, led actually, to be honest, from pe by people within the game, this big kind of push to say, well, look, we shouldn't be thinking about these foreign managers when we've got, we've got Chris Wilder or Sean Dyche or whoever it might be at the time. But then as soon as they, as soon as they hit a, ro you know, a roadblock or a hiccup or whatever it is, there is, there's simultaneously a push, as Chink says, to kind of say, aha, this is why, but also to almost deny that the problems are happening. And I think with Wilder, what's interesting is that Sheffield United, brilliant, his, his body of work at Sheffield United, the two promotions, can't argue with that at all. What they did last season, can't argue with that in the slightest. He is clear, he has clearly done a good job at Sheffield United and, and the Saudi owner there has come out and said that even if they were to be relegated, he'd support Wilder, there'd be no pressure on him. And I think that's, that's absolutely right, just as... Norwich did with Daniel Farker or whatever but I do think it's that there's a kind of there's a middle way that is that is much more reasonable which is that Chris Wilder very clearly did a really good job has done a really good job at Sheffield United but having to develop the style is also part of management mm -hmm. and although as Chinch says he's tried to do it he has not thus far been able to do it and it is legitimate to criticise him for that failure to to adjust the style to continue the success. I think I, it's, I don't it's the same think that's true, Rory. It's the same true of Eddie Howe at Bournemouth. He had those successes, and there was yeah. a, a designated. And he didn't. I feel that Bournemouth could have saved themselves if Eddie had adapted the styles ever so slightly to be more defensively strong. He just seemed to say, "Well, if we go down, we're going down playing our way." So he didn't seem to. Did he do the players that they signed were kind of Bournemouth play? It didn't seem to me as if they would try to actually change things. Where Chris, it doesn't look like it now because you look at the league table, but he is actively trying to change things. But people just look at a league table and say, look at where you were last season, look at where you are now. You, you clearly don't know what you're doing and everything's going wrong, which is clearly not the case. Well, as, as Steve said about, about roots into journalism, I think it's the same with, with teams that... that there isn't a sort of one size fits fits all approach that 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 works for that works for everybody. That's the phrase that works for everybody. So, it, and like you think about about Stoke, we talked about this on on Five Live the other day. You think about Stoke. Stoke had had a clear plan and and an identity that basically could have kept them up effectively forever, really, um, or, or certainly for longer than they ended up staying up. And the reason that Stoke got into trouble was because they tried to adjust and it didn't work. They didn't kind of whether they didn't have a clear idea of what they were trying to adjust to or whether they they did, but they got kind of sidetracked along the way, they kind of ended up in this weird no man's land where, where they weren't quite sure what they were meant to be. And as soon as that happens for clubs of that size, you basically, you either get relegated or you come very close to getting relegated. You need to have some sort of plan because you're not going to have the quality of players to get you out of it on, on, on your own. It seems like they wanted to get away from what they were at all well, costs. They, they did, but then if you what tended to happen with Stoke, or certainly the way that, that I perceived it, was that Stoke would end up, they'd start the season saying, right, we're going to be more attractive, we're going to sign Bojan, or we're going to sign Shakiri, or we're going to do this, that, or the other. Mark Muniesa, we're going to be Stoke alone. And it'd be fine for a bit. And then they'd, they'd get to November and they'd have a run of quite difficult games and they'd lose them all. And at that point, Mark Hughes would say, actually, no, sod this, we've got to go back to being the Stoke of old. But they weren't, they didn't really have the players to be the Stoke of old. They didn't have Ricardo Fuller anymore. They didn't have whoever it might be, whoever else was in that team. Rory Delap. Rory Delap. They ended up kind of caught in no man's land. I think with Bournemouth, it, it's a little bit different. I think Bournemouth, there was always a fatal flaw in the way Bournemouth played, and that's that without the ball, they weren't very good. They were, they were great in possession. They were lovely to watch. But if you, 
a lot of people said to me for a long time before they got relegated that Bournemouth had a problem without the ball, that they weren't particularly effective at winning possession back, both in terms of their shape, their defensive shape, and in terms of the way that they kind of they pressed or the way that they, they But then look at them, but look at them this season. That's exactly the change that Jason Tiddle yeah. has made. And look how how different they are. I know they're playing in the championship, not the Premier League, but they look at I am amazed they're a totally different team from a tactical change, a coaching change. So I would say that that was more a that Stokes problem. I think this is this is a big thing in football that we try to find like through lines for everything, as though there is just kind of one solution to yeah. to the game, and there's not. So if you, Stoke's problem was that they tried to change and it didn't work, Bournemouth's problem was that they didn't try to change, and they 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 had a something that that was a, a something that was a flaw, and they never under Eddie Howe they never really addressed it. And it, whether that, to be honest, the only conclusion there is that that is a flaw in Eddie any in, in Eddie Howe's coaching makeup. Norwich stuck with what they did and got relegated, um, but then that seemed to be their almost their plan anyway. That they'll then come back. You know, they, their plan is to finish in the top twenty-five or whatever. I think Sheffield United. It looks to me like there's more. They have more of Stoke about them than they do with Bournemouth. And you do wonder whether what might get Wilder out of it initially is is just reverting to to what he did at, in the first place, and whether the change has not been whether they're not ready to change or whether the change hasn't been done effectively enough. Or it might be that, do you know what, it might be that Chris Wilder's a really good manager, but he's not a good enough manager to change the style of a team in the Premier League. That's a really hard thing to do. And there's plenty of managers who don't, Tony Pulis couldn't do it. Tony Pulis is a really good manager. Sam Allardyce couldn't do it. Sam Allardyce is a really good manager. David Moyes couldn't do it. And he was at Manchester United. He had the talent of players at his disposal at Manchester United, but he couldn't change his own philosophy to, to work in the Premier League. And I think that we... There's a tendency to think that all managers, that to be a good manager in inverted commas means you can do everything, but only the very best managers can do can pull off those sorts of tricks of, of kind of blending two generations or rebuilding a team or re- redefining a style. That, that's re- it's really hard stuff to do on the fly whilst you're in the, one of the toughest leagues in the world. And ultimately, maybe Wilder just can't quite pull it off. And that that's no great, that's no shame for him. And it doesn't detract from what he's done already. But to me, it's odd that it feels like to, to criticise Wilder now is seen as automatically saying, well, what he did last season didn't count, but clearly it does. Both of those things can be true. Yeah, he definitely deserves an opportunity to be the one to put it right. Yeah. Because if you look at the championship table right now, the three teams that were relegated last season are in the top four. So that mentality may be that you don't have to be in the Premier League to be considered a potential Premier League club, if that makes sense, in that maybe you need to look beyond the idea of just being in those 20 clubs clinging on for as long as possible. And whether Norwich and Bournemouth in particular have offered a lesson that Sheffield United can follow in that by not making a dramatic change to try and save yourselves in the short term, you are maybe preserving for the longer term the progress, the bigger picture progress that has been made. Because Sheffield United finished 11th in League One the season before Chris Wilder took over. So what, four or five years later, to be struggling at the bottom of the Premier League is a great position to be in, in comparison to that, in a relatively short period of time. So it's entirely wrong that what they achieved last season is being devalued and Chris Wilder is now being seen as as a man who cannot adapt or cannot regenerate and come up with a plan B, especially in this season of 
all seasons because I think that needs to be taken into consideration as well. The tight turnaround between campaigns, the compacted nature of this season, playing more often than not every three or four days, that, that makes, for, for Chris Wilder to make that tactical switch to something new that is going to be as effective as what he had previously was always going to be particularly difficult under the current circumstances. So give the guy an opportunity under more normal circumstances to prove that he can go again. Because if Sheffield, Sheffield United could make a change to try and save themselves, but realistically at some point in the next two or two, three, four years, they will be relegated because that is the very nature of, of clubs. Bournemouth, you know, Bournemouth, we, we knew it was coming with Bournemouth, even though they'd made a good impression on the Premier League. They were always going to go again because it's so difficult to maintain that on the kind of budget that they're operating under. And if Sheffield United were to be relegated, they would be looking for somebody exactly like Chris Wilder to bring them up. So why get rid of Chris Wilder when he's the kind of manager that you would want if you dropped back into the championship? And just quickly on the Stoke thing, I have a certain degree of sympathy with them for having to make their alterations because there was so much criticism about the way that they did things that that was eventually going to lead that, that you'd have to have really thick skin not to try and find a different way. Whereas the likes of Norwich and Bournemouth have gone down with praise ringing in their ears about sticking to their principles and trying to play football the right way. So I, yeah, I, I feel a little bit sorry for Stoke that they had to, they had, they got to the point where they felt that they had to change and that's proved to be to their detriment. But for Sheffield United, people are looking at saying what's gone wrong this season. The signs were there last season. They conceded as many as they scored last season. They finished 11th. Again, you look at the league table and think you were a really strong team, but you look at the numbers. And that's why I say Chris was already last season trying to develop things and change things. To me, it's just a question of personnel because lots of teams now are playing three centre-halves and wing-backs. It's becoming more and more, more in, kind of in vogue to actually play that way. But the signs were there last season. It's just that when the footballing toast fell upon the cream carpet last season, it landed butter side up. Now the footballing toast is landing butter side down. So Chris is then having a major problem. Do you like what I did there with the footballing toast? It's good that, isn't it? I just, I just, I just thought it up, just made it up. What about the jam? I thought there was going to be jam on it. Well, I just think it's, I wouldn't want to take it too far and push it too far. But the signs were, that's what I'm saying about Chris. But Rory's absolutely right. People expect... Uh, coaches to be able to do absolutely everything. Well, you should be able to put a team out today that wins this game. You should be thinking about the future. You should be developing your squad in terms of age. It, there's a hell of a say, well, that's what they're paid to do. And I'm sure they are trying to do that. But again, there might be limitations. Steve said this season with, with fitness levels and the, the short term. There's so many issues going into it. that, And I don't think it's really fair to say, well, what's gone wrong? They, they Suddenly the wheels have come off Sheffield United. There was always... Even last season, things, things could have been very different for them, but they weren't. But he was actively trying to change. It's just that everything has come to a head. But there is no one answer. There's no one. The way that you play is the problem. It was why you were successful. Now it's the problem. It isn't. That, that shape and that style of football is not the problem. It's the personnel. It's missing key personnel. Goalkeeper and, and Jack O'Connell. They had a huge role to play in, in the way that um, Sheffield United finished 11th last season. So I just think it's a bit, again, lazy just to, just to say, yeah, the style of football is, is why you're struggling so badly. But the problem is that that sense that once you are deemed good, like you're a good manager, once there is that kind of Chris Wilder should get the Arsenal job, impulse, once everyone's praised you constantly, it's, it's just kind of assumed that you are 
that you've kind of completed football and that, that you can then do anything. And I think that that really undersells the complexity of, of life for those teams. So when, when Wigan went down, there was a lot of criticism of Roberto Martinez and of, of how, yeah, was, was that the season they won the cup? They win the cup and go yeah. down the same yeah. season? Yeah, they did, yeah. And there was this, there was, I, I remember covering a lot of Wigan's games that year and it was kind of, well, Wigan shouldn't have focused on the cup and, you know, they should still be in the Premier League and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the, the style, it should have changed the style of play. But statistically, in terms of the odds of a team on Wigan's budget staying up for seven years in the Premier League, which they did, the, the chances of that happening were 0%. Wigan literally defied logic to stay in the Premier League for that long. You, on, on a budget like that, you, you might have a sort of, you've probably got a 50% chance of staying up for a year, a 20% chance of staying up for two years, a 10% chance of staying up for whatever it is. And by the time you get to five, six, seven, it's zero percent or negligible. You know, the chances of it happening are are massively unlikely. And I think we 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 maybe forget that a little bit once teams have become established. And that might be established in the sense that Bournemouth or Swansea were established, where they they were in the Premier League for a long time, or what felt like a long time. So definitely, if you were driving to Swansea regularly, it felt like a long time. <laughs> the we we kind of think well, they're part of the furniture, so they they therefore should be able to survive forever. Or in, in Sheffield United's case, it's just they came up and made such a big impression straight away that that it was was well, you, th- you finished eleventh last season, so you should probably be kicking on for Europe this year, lads. And you think, well, actually, it doesn't really work like that. That their budget is still really small, their their potential kind of attractiveness to the players, I think, is is relatively low. I think it's not a surprise that they they've only got a couple of non non British and Irish players in the squad. Sander Berger may, may in fact be the only one who plays regularly. Everybody else is British or Irish. It's hard, I think, for teams like Sheffield United and Burnley to, to attract Italians and Spanish players because, they, you know, they, those players want to live in London or as close to it as they can. And they'll make exceptions for teams in Manchester and Liverpool because they're famous. But that's basically it. Their budgets aren't massive. Sheffield, what Sheffield United did last season was incredibly unlikely. This season is what we kind of expected last season to be for Sheffield United. And I think we're not good enough at separating. We're not good enough at accepting the idea that coaches who've done things well can also then struggle without necessarily being perfect or awful. That there is a there, there is a position in between that is legitimate. That is a legitimate opinion to hold. Chris Wilder did, did a brilliant job last season. He has not yet done the job he needs to do this season. I just need to jump in and do the the commentators' statistical accuracy bit because both Rory and Chinch have now said that Sheffield United finished 11th last season, which is going to have listeners who support Sheffield United getting increasingly incensed that you're devaluing their top half of the table finish. They finished 9th last season. I only said 11th because I'm sure you said 11th, Steve. They were they finished 11th in League One the season before Chris. Oh, I, I wasn't you listening. Need to, you need to listen to the whole thing, Chinch. You can't just dip I just out don't, and pick, uh, yeah. I, pick I just occasional numbers out of the air and assume that... See, just just yeah. because we've done a good job for 208 episodes doesn't mean that the 209th episode can't be massively undermined by statistical mm. inaccuracies. Do West Bromwich Albion offer us a, a sort of blueprint for this in in some ways in the yes they are a yo-yo club and that must be frustrating and yes for their supporters that emotional roller coaster but their presence in the premier league is not seen as a novelty or in any way surprising and there is no sense whatsoever that that isn't overwhelmingly a well-run club even though they they go between the premier league and the championship and for a, for a club like sheffield united would that not be a pretty decent position to be in 
And almost the way that Bournemouth and Norwich went about things last season is that they were accepting their fate, that they would be relegated, but they wanted to make sure that they were relegated in the best way possible to provide them that platform to come back up again. And just to go back to, so to, go back to the point I made a little bit earlier is it's not necessarily about being one of the, the best 20 clubs, but if you can be one of the best 25, 26 teams, then you're offering yourself that opportunity to, to dip into the Premier League often enough, regularly enough, and for long enough to make sure that the, that the financial health of the club is strong enough that you don't that you can put a, a decent operation and philosophy in place that means that even if you do fall out of the Premier League, you're not going to be one of those teams, as Wigan have unfortunately done most recently, that plummet down through the divisions. Bolton are another case in Bolton mm -hmm. playing in League Two at the moment. Yeah, yeah. incredible. So, and and they they were in the Premier League for a lot longer than some of the other clubs that we've already talked about, and now look at them; they're playing in the fourth tier. So we have talked about in the past how being relegated from the Premier League can be catastrophic because at one point, more than 50% of the time, you would also subsequently be relegated to, to League One within a couple of seasons. Maybe clubs have wised up to that mm. to make sure that they don't make these violent changes in approach and philosophy in terms of trying to save themselves in the Premier League to the point that if they aren't able to do so, They've completely busted everything that they built and the longer-term implications are massive for them. Sunderland are another great example of, of a team yeah. that, that spent so long just trying to stay up without a clear plan of, of, of what that kind of looked like. I'd, Sunderland is the stage where they were just thinking of how do we stay up this season, not how do we stay up this season and make sure we avoid relegation next season. There wasn't, there were, they never made that. They never thought that far ahead. And they, they have, are, are still paying the price for that. To me, I think the, the example of this was for a long time was Charlton under Kirbishly that became the kind of byword for don't try and change, accept your state, make sure you don't, don't get too big for your boots, it's fine finishing 14th. But I think football has moved considerably beyond that, Charlton, because this isn't to diminish Alan Kirbishly's managerial talent, which I think we can all ag agree is, is transcendent. But Charlton never had... Chal Chal Charlton were just a good well-drilled, hard-working team. That's what Charlton did. They, they, they weren't spectacular. They sometimes until March. <laughs> yeah, and then in, until March when they just dropped off completely. And that's, that's fine. They, they, were, they, they played a kind of fairly basic system. They, they played reasonably attractive football. They weren't long ball, but they weren't kind of, they weren't a possession-dominant side. They, they were the, the masters of knowing exactly how to survive in the Premier League. But I don't think that works anymore. That's, that, I think, is a huge, huge shift. That, that Wilder actually is well suited to, which is you have to be, do something different. If you just play kind of off the shelf Premier League football, where your main qualities are that you work hard and you press a bit and you maybe take a couple of the kind of trendy sort of tactical strategic ideas that, that, that the elite are doing and, and maybe try and sort of adopt them a bit for your quality of players, you'll get found out really quickly. You have to have something about you that is different. You have to, whether that's, Swansea playing attractive football with with kids or whatever, or whether it's Stoke playing resolute long balls, you you have to have some sort of defining identity because that 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 is how you win games. If you if you take the Charlton approach, you might stay up for a bit. Now, what Charlton could do it then because that was how how the Premier League was structured. 
if you try to do what Charlton did now and just play kind of relatively standard Premier League in inverted commas football, you get found out really quickly because there are teams around you that, that specialise in something. And I think West, although I agree with Steve that I think aiming for kind of 20, the top 25 as Norwich do is a really sensible plan. And just, just accepting that you can, you'll have years where you get the Premier League money and years where you don't and you balance it all out in the same way as a lot of teams in say Germany will budget to have European football three years out of five. You can do that with the Premier League money and make it work. The problem that I think West Brom have got is that I don't see in them any clear plan of, right, this is, this is the type of football that we play, which means these are the types of players that we sign. These are the types of managers that we hire. I think that if you don't have that clear idea of what you are, you're exposing yourself to potential volatility in the fallow years. You're, it might be that West Brom get relegated and go and appoint somebody who's completely different to Slavon Bilic, who wants completely different players, which means they have to spend a load of money getting those players in. But when it doesn't work, they have to spend another load of money sacking the manager and buying a whole new raft of players. That's, that's where that lack of identity, that lack of plan becomes a real problem. That's the other side of the same coin uh, with, with Sunderland, isn't it? Because Sunderland were trying short term to paper over yeah. the cracks and get themselves surviving in the Premier League. A team like West Brom might be one of those who just does enough to get up, always trying to find a way of trying to get promoted and then don't really have a plan once you get promoted. Uh, I just want to finish the conversation by, by switching it up to the top of the Premier League because there are two examples that I can think of. There'll be many others as well. Um, where this might apply, this idea that that magic potion runs out, the, the, the old traditional bar, but Jose Mourinho is that it runs out during his third season, that the magic potion that Jose Mourinho has, whether it's a tactical one or whether it's because of the relationship with his players or because whether the personal relationships break down or he can't think of anything to do to regenerate his squad, that seems to run out. And also Pep Guardiola seems to be going through it at the moment where he is charged for the first time in his managerial career of trying to regenerate his team, trying to lower the age range as he did at the very beginning, but then with the group of players that won those two Premier League titles back to back. And he's almost being accused of not having magic potion when it seemed to have been in such abundant supply uh, during his career. And so you've got two slightly different, but of the same ilk that at the elite level of the game, there is still this sense, is there not, that the managers, even the best managers, run out of this, this magic potion at some point? But the problem there is that, that what Guardiola's having to do is different to what he's done before. So Pep Guardiola is one of the best managers, managers of the generation, no question about that. But he is, he's never been in a position where he has to manage that transition, both in terms of personnel and, of, and slightly of style, to be honest. And it's no surprise that he's he's hit a couple of kind of bumps on the road. I'm sure he'll be able to do it, but partly because City have so much money available to them that they should be they, they should effectively be able to recruit their way out of problems. But it's it shouldn't be a surprise that Guardiola is finding it difficult because he's not done it before. He had four years at Barter and left, he had three years at Bayern and left. He had one generation, got them playing wonderful football, transformative football, but never faced the point where he had to say, right, we need to transition from th this generation to that generation or from this style to that style. But it, this but is a new doing, test for Guardiola. But, yes, absolutely. But in doing it, he is, is, it's almost like, well, 
why, why are you not able to apply this ing these ingredients for your magic potion to a situation which is different and you have never experienced before? That's what that's what I made me think of it when you were talking about Chris Wilder. You're either brilliant or you're not, and it might be because of their nationality, it might be because of what they have done previously, or it might be that they're never going to take that next step to that elite level because of their nationality. But it, I find that they they are linked in some way because Pep Guardiola is expected, even though it has never happened to him before, is expected to just magically create a path out of problems rather than giving credit for maybe realizing that there are problems in the short, medium and long term that he is attempting to address in exactly the way that that Chinch said about Chris Wilder, hopefully before they happened. It didn't work with Chris Wilder, it hasn't yet, but is Pep Guardiola not now in that stage that Chris Wilder was perhaps seven or eight months ago? Yes. And I think the two problems are, one is that we have an, an expectation of immediacy. If you encounter a problem and you can't solve it straight away, it's assumed that you will never be able to solve it. We, we have developed an incredibly impatient football culture. You know, it's that you see it with, you know, a team will win at the weekend and suddenly they'll be declared title favourites. Everton will be crowned Premier League champions on the 14th of September. And, or Chelsea will be declared to be the coming force in the middle of October or whatever. And you think, well, actually, hang on, there's quite a long way to go here, lads, we need to calm down. It functions the other way, the other way around as well, that if you have a team that, that has a slightly sort of hiccupy start, the immediate assumption is, well, that they've gone, they've gone completely. And you can, you can have that take because you know that the next week when they win, you can say, well, actually, they're back now. I and mean, it's this constant kind of city. You had it with City after they beat Burnley and Fulham in two consecutive home games. And suddenly Man City have found their stride again. You think, well, hang on. They've played Burnley and Fulham at home. That let's wait. Into, and then, you know, in due course, they go and play the Manchester derby and draw nil-nil and suddenly it's back in crisis. It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous way of thinking about the game. And that Manchester derby was interesting because, yes, it was incredibly dull, but the pragmatism that he showed and has done to a certain degree over the course of the last few months, it kind of sprinkling in the, the, the double pivot and being slightly more aware of how you, um, how you keep on conceding on the counter-attack. Why is that considered some sort of surrender rather than an attempt to solve a problem with the long-term future in mind of attempting to at least hold your course at a point where you are attempting to change the long-term future of your club. It's, it's, it's interesting how things are described, like you say, Rory, in the immediate terms, rather than the thought that because Pep Guardiola has, is at a club for the longest point in his career and will be so for another year or two at least, you're in a situation where having signed that new contract, suddenly you're disregarding that there is a future to come and you're only thinking about the next three to four weeks. And is there anything to say about Mourinho or is that just an obvious tale of personal relationships breaking down? I, I just wonder whether are people in being critical of Jose Mourinho and the time he spends at clubs? He, he kind of comes in, has success, changes the, the style and, is, and then moves on. Is, is that with the immediacy that we've talked about? Is, is that maybe the most sensible thing for coaches to do? Because the longer you stay, like Sir Alex at, at Man United, you are going to have to regenerate. And maybe there's not many coaches who feel they have the talent to do that or are going to get the time to do that or really want to do that. They'd rather move to another club and actually instill their kind of methods at a new club and be judged on that rather than spend eight years, nine years at one club and have to build another team and another team or get the, the certain players or sign in new players to play your way. So is that maybe what we're going to see with, with coaches again because of how they're judged so quickly? They're only going to be around for, for three or four years and then, then they move on. The other thing with Mourinho is that whilst the, the circumstances of this season are making life difficult for some people, they couldn't be more perfect. 
for him. Well, that's why we're talking about all this this season, Steve, aren't we? Yeah. Is, is, it, is it because of this season that we're talking in, in the terms we are about these, these coaches but and teams? Football has come back to a position which suits Mourinho's approach to things, whereas it perhaps isn't suiting the way that Pep Guardiola wants to tactically innovate. He hasn't had the time to do that, whereas Mourinho's ability to galvanise what is clearly a good squad of players of whom there wasn't a huge amount expected. So now they are able to give the impression that they are playing well above themselves. They are capitalising on the fact that one or two of the, the teams that were supposed to be well ahead of them have dropped off a little bit. And, and Mourinho is, has been regenerated within himself. He's the old Mourinho again, isn't he? He's, he's got a set of circumstances which suits his football philosophy, his approach towards things. And he's come up with a way of, of getting Kane and Son to play together beautifully, for which he deserves great credit, of course. But th- this is all, this is a, a perfect spot, a perfect storm conspiring in favour of Jose Mourinho. He can't believe his luck. Yeah, just to back that point up, I had um, uh, the, the league table for this kind of uh, passes per defensive action, basically the high pressing teams. Who's, who are the high pressing and who are not? But it backs up your point, Steve. You can't wait to see that graphic. I would never use it because I have to explain it. But teams like Leicester and Tottenham and West Ham, who are playing more of a counter-attacking game this season, are actually seeing the benefits because we've talked about the short turnaround, so many players getting injured, the high-pressing teams not being able to have the level of intensity and fitness to play that way. There's only really, I think, Southampton of the teams that are, are pressing and Chelsea are about seventh in that league. So it's Southampton and Chelsea of the high-pressing teams are doing well. But actually, there's other teams that are probably appreciated, and that's why this fits so well with Mourinho. His style is to sit behind the ball. He's got players who can counter-attack really effectively. It's less demanding. So that's why I think it's working. But Leicester are doing the same, and West Ham are a good example of that as well. They've got the counter-attacking game working perfectly. So Moyes, again, has probably taken it all into consideration that this season, we might get away. We might have a chance of finishing top six because of how we play. Well, interestingly, this is a completely different subject, but I think that's a really, I think this is that Chinch has once again happened upon the defining issue of the day. I wonder, Ralph not, Rangnick, not on purpose, though, basically, on just purpose. basically stumbled over the, the murderer. Yeah. My, my, my close personal, you found a body whilst walking the dark. <laughs> no, I found the murderer, not the body, because that doesn't tell me who's done it. I found the murderer over the body with a knife in his hand and said, ha. And that, that's what that's basically happened there. But and tell the, me and why I got said, it so right. You got me. You got yes, me. Yes, got it me. was me. Here's the video evidence. But tell well, me why I'm so right. What murderer doesn't take a brief homicide nap? <laughs> <laughs> you, what you've got so right, Chinch, is that this season is set, is set up for teams that play a more patient counter-attacking style to do well. And the high-press teams, which rely on that level of fitness and that, being able to produce that intensity week in, week out to struggle. And we, we saw over the past weekend that basically with one or two exceptions, every team that was in the Champions League in midweek didn't win at the weekend. And that I don't think is particularly coincidental. I think that we have seen a drop-off of the elite teams. The question that I have comes from my friend Ralph Rangnick, inspirational figure, whose whose view is that the high-pressing style in the long run conserves energy because you're making more short sprints and not covering long distances. So he thinks over the course of a season that it's actually an easier way to play on the players' bodies. That is counterintuitive to me, but it might yet, if he's right, it might well be that by February, March, April, you see when, when the, when the counter-attacking teams are tired as well, when they've had the long slog over winter, that the high-press teams actually have more energy available to them. I think that will be a fascinating dynamic for the rest of the season. So what I'll do, Steve, every month I'll send you this PPDA league table and you and I can maybe 
have a chat over it, maybe a coffee and a, a just, croissant, because I, I can clearly see you. I'm, I'm surprised that you're, you're, you're how, how reticent you are. Yes, I do. Why you you love all the the science and the numbers? I'm, Why I'm are you just shaking putting myself. Head? I'm putting myself in the, the the position of whoever your next match director is, Chinch, who will be having to take call after call from you to make sure that the graphic has been built for the PPDA table. I haven't and used it yet, but I am. And if it tells the story, and it, again, it's maybe just this season, and for teams like Tottenham and West Ham, who I've happened to have done in the last two matches. It is a huge part of, you know, why are they successful this season? And if you don't look at things, you have to look at everything, of course you do. But this I just thought was really interesting. And I just thought, well, wait a minute, are, are other counter-attacking teams doing well? And they are. So, Steve, I can still see you're not convinced by this. Every time the ball goes out of play on halfway, Chinch will be on the talk back from the gantry going, put in the PPDA They've table got the now. graphic. Have you got that graphic ready? Benedict, get, the, get that graphic in now, Benedict. Be, oh, sorry, Andy, you're breaking up on the talk back there. Can't quite. So, say that again. Oh, hang on. We've got to cut away of Gareth Southgate. Sorry. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to, because I had a battle getting in average positions graphics the other day, because they were saying, well, what are you trying to say? Um, I want to say how high the Tottenham fullbacks are playing. Right. So what you want to say is the Tottenham fullbacks are playing high. Yes, that's exactly what I want. It is happening. And the gra- oh, it, it, actually, we've got the graphic here. And that is the case. Yes, that's why I wanted it. But I had to, again, go three or four different conversations to actually get it on screen. And boy, was it effective. It is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is an Andy Hinchcliffe tells tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour, uh, libel-worthy details and PPDA leagues removed. Um, was it the last pod where I talked about me kind of going under the radar, even though I've been in this business and been brilliant for a good decade? Still, people seem to say, oh, what are you doing now? Was it in the last, was it in the last pod we talked about this? Either that or two pods ago. It yeah, all it merges all, into one. They all just were merged into one great big cesspit, don't they? <laughs> but um, but excellent informative cess. Um, yeah, it was at Crystal Palace against Tottenham, and it, the rain was thundering down. So I had a, a Sky Sports branded brolly. They're quite big. My Sky Sports pass around my neck, and I'm making my way across to the gantry. So there's a, a steward who man's the gate and he says oh and so he starts talking to me clearly knows again who i am and he, he said that maybe i listened to the pod so i said oh great so we're chatting away saying you know how awful hugh is and how great the, the, the rest of us are and so he's to pod 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 and then he says so what are you doing here <laughs> i just i looked the first thing i looked at was the umbrella and i said i'm uh, i'm commentating it seems, I said, if you've listened to the pod, I do talk about being, I know I've played seven brilliant games for England, but I do talk a lot about co-commentary work that I do for Sky. I'm, where, I'm holding a Sky umbrella. I've got a Sky, big, huge lanyard and pass around my neck. Sky, what are you doing? I just said, but then I couldn't just say, oh, and just barge past him, you know, push him in the chest and bar. I couldn't do that. I had to explain while I'm, oh, Really? Yes, this is what I, this is my job. You do realize it's my job. I don't do the pod for a living. It doesn't pay me anything. I do it apparently for fun. But I just couldn't believe that he would say, what, but the brolly, the brolly's the giveaway, isn't it? How many times a season do you carry a brolly? Okay, sometimes it's not unfilled, but this one was, it was pretty clear. I'm not carrying it for fun. Yes, it's keeping me dry, but it's who I work for. So it keeps happening, which again, I shouldn't be too unhappy about because I don't want to be front and center. I do want to go under the radar, but not to that degree. Come on. You must realise why I'm there. 
Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thanks to Rory, Andy, and Stephen, and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Finch, you, you say you don't get paid, but I think I can get hold of quite a lot of Jordanian Allen keys for you. Would they work in the UK? I presume. Any, is, already, well, again, you're presuming. I wouldn't presume anything. The Allen key is, is a universal, universal tool. In many ways, it's a universal language. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me that if that when we do find an alien civilization, the one thing we'll have in common with them is the Allen key. Because ultimately, there's only so many ways to get talk. <laughs> not this type of T-A-L-K. Not this time. The other not type this, of talk. Yes, it's, it's, it's good talk. to talk. Yes. Good. It is, that should be the slogan for Allen keys. <laughs> I'm caught between. I, I do love Allen keys, but I do love a Phillips head. A, not a small oh. one, a fairly sizable Phillips head screwdriver. I just feel I've got both... A control and purchase. Like a, a large novelty inflatable one? No, not like that. No, not like that at all. That's No, absolutely not. No, no, I want something that I can, I can stick in a screw. I've just realised something, by the way, Chinch, why you're so fascinated by the PPDA table. Cool. I know during lockdown, you know, you've really struggled with the, with the lack of, of, of human contact. You, you, you do enjoy a nice warm embrace, Chinch. Mm. So for you, is, is PPDA particularly public displays of affection? Nice. You, how, you've, I can see that you've clearly been, written that down. Why no, I'm not, you no, have, it's on that bit of paper. You've just been show me you're working. Show me, Steve. Steve, show me you're working. I was, I was going to hold gonna look it up, up to the camera. P P D. Yes, and you've written it down cleverly to make Chinch, me look again foolish. Chinch, genuinely, I will take the PPDA table from you. It's I brilliant. Like that. Do you want an up-to-date really one or one from a couple of weeks back, the one that I used for the particular game? But I'll just get a yeah, I'll get an up-to-date one for you. If you Steve, get an up-to-date one, that's fine. Steve, you can show.